How y'all doing this morning? Morning. Dumbstruck at the beauty of the day, right? Uh, I miss you guys. I haven't been up here in a while. Uh, I'm a little rusty, so the splash zone here won't get spit. It'll just get rust on it and dust as I uh, practice what I'm doing. Now, I know y'all are usually pretty good about this, but I'm going to actually ask y'all to make sure that you have either your Bible, if at all possible, your Bible or your Bible on your phone to look at while I read through our passage this morning, okay? Um, I'm not usually really particular about that, but I'm going to work through something here, so I want y'all to to work with me on that. We're going to be in 1 John 5. We're picking up where Peter left off, Pastor Peter left off last week. Um, On verse 12, we're going to pick up 13 through uh, 17 today. Uh, The plan, I believe, is Pastor Peter's going to take the next week and do the next three verses, and then uh, and then I think he's going to do the next week, the last verse of this book, which is one of my favorite endings of any book in the Bible. It feels really weird and out of place, and it feels like it's the beginning of something, but he got distracted and had to go, like, turn off the tea kettle or something and forgot to get back to it. That's what it kind of feels like, but it is also the summary of the entire book. Uh, so it's really, really interesting to me. Um, but we're going to work through these uh, five verses, I guess it is, uh, starting in First John 5, 13. So I'm going to read this and read along with me, if you're at all able to. <clears throat> I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, uh, sorry, let me read that again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay. All right. Um, do me a favor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say verse numbers, all right? I want you to be looking at your Bible. And I want you to raise your hand at the point where you went, huh, this just got interesting. Okay? You ready? Verse 13. Anybody? Okay. Verse 14. Verse 15, verse 16, verse 17. And the rest of you don't think this got interesting at all, which is great. Um, So let's do this again real quick. 13, keep your hands up when you get it. So Miss Anna thinks it got interesting in verse 13. Sorry, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Okay. All right. That's interesting. That's what I expected. It's not weird. Okay. Um, Why did it get interesting there to you? Why were you like, ooh, what was, what grabbed your attention? What, uh, was it because it was new and different? Uh, Was it because you didn't understand it? Because it confused you? Because it was maybe a little controversial? Some big scandal, maybe something that frustrates your thoughts about the gospel. Uh, there's a lot of th- reasons why that those verses, those 16 and 17 verses, can be eye-grabbing, right? 
Um, your intro here says, how is reading your Bible like cleaning the kitchen? And I'm going to use my kids as an illustration here, and I will incriminate all of them in this. Um, because I, I, just a heads up, I would have answered 16 or 17 when I first started studying this passage. Okay? Oftentimes, when we're done eating dinner or on a random time, I'll ask my kiddos to pick up the kitchen. They're really good about it. Um, but almost invariably, so let's just imagine we've just cooked dinner. So it's, it's a pretty messy counter. It's full of stuff. And I'll say, you guys work on cleaning the kitchen. I'm going to go do this task. And within two minutes, somebody comes to me with some random thing they found on the counter. It's just something that got placed there. Some, maybe it's a piece of mail. Maybe it's something that somebody pulled out of their pocket. It's like, where does this go? Now, there are a plethora of things on the counter that they know exactly where they go, right? But invariably, their attention jumps to the one thing that they don't know where this goes. It, is, it does not have a category for them. It is interesting. It is different. It is new. And that is the thing that they ask about. That's the thing that catches their attention. Not the other things that they know where they go. This one thing that is so new and different to them is like, ooh, what do I do with this? And it will grind the gears to a halt of the kitchen cleaning operation until we know where this thing is going. Or unless I go, don't worry about it. Put the things that you know where they go, where they go, okay? Um, Again, this is not an indictment of the class because I did the same thing. But my eyes are drawn in this passage to this new and different and weird thing. And What's funny, when you look at the structure of this paragraph, because just a heads up, we're in the middle of a section. We're stopping in the middle of a section here. This is an example in a series of things, like in a section. It's like a little side note almost, but it's the thing that catches our attention. Um, So we will get to that. We will talk about this. But I want us to keep two important things in mind as we read our Bible and as we encounter passages like this. The first one is, Know what the main point of the passage is and what is secondary. Focus on the main point. Doesn't mean you don't have to know what's secondary. You have to understand what's secondary. But understand that your goal is to understand the single main point of the passage. Secondly, there are things about which the Bible says a lot. And there are things about which the Bible says a little. That which the Bible says a lot about, we should say a lot about. That which the Bible says a little about, we should say less about. We should say less about it, and if it's unclear, we should say it with less certainty. Does that make sense? Um, you have whole sects and cults and, and denominations that will split off over an interpretation of some, some obscure passage that's like has no external reference. It's kind of a one-off comment, and it'll cause whole church splits. That's an idea of majoring in the minors instead of then in the majors. As we study scripture, it's not that we don't want to get the minor things right. It's just that we want to hold them with a looser hand than we hold the major things about which there is far more certainty. Does that make sense? Good. Um, That said, I want to take us to a word. We're going to talk about what this passage is talking about. And really, this is the beginning of a recap. So we're seven, eight verses from the end of the book here. So John is concluding his passage here. And 
Paul's conclusions tend to have these, say hi to him, say hi to him, say hi to him, you know, my friend's over here, say hi to her, thank her for this, thank him for that. Um, John is, is concluding by doing more like we would think, those are like letters. This is a letter, but it almost feels more like a, a good essay you'd write when you were in school, where like, this is what I'm going to say, here I'm saying it, this is what I said, right? That's kind of what John does here. And so he's recapping a bunch of his letter, which as we said, is also itself kind of a Cliff's notes for the book of John. Um, so I want to introduce us to a, a word. Some of you may already know this word called epistemology. Who's heard this word epistemology before? Okay. I'm, I, I was preparing this and I was sad that my friend, Dr. Bob Hartman, wasn't going to be here today because he's a philosopher and uh, he would have loved hearing me do this. He would have smiled as I got things wrong um, and then quietly told me, you know, actually it's this. Um, so I did a lot of Googling to make sure I got the definition exactly right. Uh, epistemology is the theory of knowledge, especially with regard to its methods, validity, and scope. Epistemology is the investigation of what, distinguish, uh, what distinguishes justified belief from opinion. In other words, it's the study of what we know. Um, and how do we know what we know? And how do we know that we know what we know? And what can we know? And can we even really know anything. Um, I encountered this idea probably 20, 25 years, 20 years ago, maybe. Um, This world where nothing is certain. Everything is interpreted through somebody else's lens and through somebody else's words. And so we can't really know anything. Um, And I wouldn't go there with that. But epistemology is just the study of how do we know things? What does it mean to know something and how do we know something? So To know something, and I'm going to give you a dictionary definition of to know, which seems really obvious, but I want us to at least understand what I'm talking about with the word know, put some ground rules in here. To know is to perceive or understand as fact or truth, to apprehend clearly and with certainty. So again, you hear just like in that definition of epistemology, there's a distinction between opinion and fact. There is something that I genuinely know, certain knowledge and guesswork or opinion. And these are separate worlds. Um, And we have to treat things that we know different than what we think, right? Um, I can't say this is my favorite color, red, so red is the best color. There's a difference between opinion and fact. There is no best color. Um, There are lots of colors, and that's a preference matter. But I can say I am five foot six, and that is a matter of fact. It's not my opinion. If you said it's my opinion that you're six feet tall, I'd say I appreciate that. Um, (laughs) you are deluded. Um, so then the question is, how do we acquire knowledge? So if we're going to get knowledge into our brain, we have to get it in some way. And there are three ways essentially in which we can get knowledge. The first one is sensory input. What am I looking at? What am I seeing? I can see that Atticus has a purple shirt on. I can see that Mr. Renee is sitting at a table with his elbow on a chair and his hand on his head. Um, I can see that the walls are like a cream color, except for that's brick. I'm sensing things. I can smell things. I cooked pancakes this morning, so when I bring my hands close to my face, I still smell vanilla. Um, I, uh, I hear things. I hear a little whooshing sound, right? That's, you know, that's my senses, okay? I have knowledge based on what I sense. Um, I can also know things that I'm not sensing currently, but I've experienced in the past. So I know my name, not based on what I'm experiencing sensorily, sens- sens- sensibly, sen- sensually. Um, <laughs> never tried to turn that word into that adverb. Um, I know my name because I've been told my name. I know past experience. 
my name is Nick. Um, I know your names, many of them, because I've talked to you and you've told me your name. I know what I do for a living. I know what I had for breakfast this morning, the aforementioned pancakes. Uh, I know that I went to work this week. Um, I know things that I've been told in the past, I've experienced in the past. And lastly, uh, I can know through the testimony of somebody else. Now, that knowledge is based on the reliability of the witness that I'm talking to, but um, anything that's been communicated to me, I can know with the certainty to which I can be certain of the reliability of the person who communicated to me. Does that make sense? Because I'm not sure if I... um, So... Those are the three ways that we can know things. Current sensory input, past experience, or the communication of a reliable witness. So then we get to 1 John, and John is talking about, because this book is essentially an epistemology lesson. If Paul's books, you know, you take um, Romans is is a lesson on soteriology, how we are saved for the most part, and then what happens as a result of that. Um... The Gospels are biographies, right? They are studies in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Revelation is, a, is an eschatology lesson. It's what's going to happen in the future. We have history in the Bible, in the, in the Old Testament, in the, and in Acts as well. Um, we have different fields of study that different books highlight. 1 John is an epistemology lesson. It's a... It's a a lesson in Christian epistemology. It's how does the Christian know what the Christian knows? Um, And into which of these three categories that we've talked about do we have the ability to acquire the knowledge that John is talking about, specifically in this passage? Because John, remember, John starts off the very beginning of his book. He talks about that which we've seen with our eyes and we've touched with our hands, right? Remember, he's the guy that ran to the tomb uh, he beat Peter in the foot race and made sure to say that in the Bible. And then Peter went in, because Peter was bolder than he was, and grabbed the, 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 the linens and that they're, they're looking, they're touching the things, they're seeing the empty tomb. And he, he attests to this. There's, he's talking about that. We're not there. Um, so this book is how do we as believers know what we know in this passage? Um, so I want us to, to link up a couple thoughts here, faith and knowledge, because nothing here that we describe in this passage is a matter of sensory input. Uh, if we just look, if we highlight the three things, we'll get to these individually. That we can have eternal life, that God hears our prayers, and that our prayers are answered. We can't know any of those things through our senses, okay? No way of knowing that we have eternal life through your five senses. No way of knowing that God hears your prayers through your five senses. And no way of knowing that he answers your prayers through your five senses, okay? Um, maybe that a little bit, but... Typically speaking, we don't know those things through our senses. And some of them explicitly happen in the present or future, so we can't know about them in the past from past experience. The bulk of what we are discussing here is communicated by the testimony of a reliable witness. Now, the question is, how does that interact with our faith? Because Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So that assurance and conviction, those words sound like that certainty word that we talked about in that dictionary definition of faith, I mean, of, of knowing. So the Bible is connecting faith and knowledge to the point where faith is knowledge. And it, it's interesting that this passage rules out a couple of, of elements of knowledge that are possible when we're talking about the faith side of knowledge. <clears throat> First of all, it's things hoped for. If it's hoped for, when is it happening? 
in the future, which means we can't know it through past, right? And specifically, he says, things not seen. So it's not my sensory input. I have faith based on, you have faith based on the testimony of a reliable witness. Now, here's the good news. Who's the reliable witness? God, the Holy Spirit. God is our perfectly reliable witness. Numbers 23 tells us that God is not a man that he should lie. We have a witness to these things by, in the person of God, that allows us to have absolute certainty in the truths that he's communicating in his word. Now, remember, I said that my knowledge of a fact that I'm hearing from a witness is only as reliable as the witness himself. But to expand on that, someone could be perfectly reliable, but I may not know them as reliable, right? Um, there, there are probably people in this room that I haven't had very much conversation with who are very reliable people. But I can't necessarily trust you until I know you. So there is this filter, if you will. God's, God is certain. God is reliable. But our experience of God's reliability grows as we grow in fellowship with him, as we grow to know him more and more, as he proves, you know, um, how he proves him or, uh, sorry, how he proves it over and over, that there is this reliability in God, in his faithfulness that is ever present, that as we get to know him, we get to love him and we get to trust him and we get to know more and more the goodness of the truths that he reveals about himself in his word. Um, So in knowledge of that, let's look at three things here that the believer can know. Um, And then Peter, like I said, will do three more things. And I will get to the sin that leads to death or doesn't lead to death. Um, So I got to get there, but we will get there. Uh, The first thing that the believer can know. Verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. By the way, I think John uses the word know in this book. It's like 39 times or 37 times, something like that, in five chapters. So this is definitely the highlight he's talking about. That you may know that you have eternal life. This is a radical thought. Now, it's, like I ask you guys, when did this, book, this chapter or passage get interesting to you? And you, we all agreed it was verse 16. But this is really interesting. Because what are the wages of sin? Death. The wages of sin are death. Have any of you sinned before? No? Okay, a couple people. All right, I need to hang out with the rest of y'all. Not those four or five sinners we got in here. Um, The wages of sin are death, and we've all sinned, and we've all earned our wages. This is really interesting. How do we know that we have eternal life when we've sinned? And, And... John, if you go back to chapter 2, because again, this section is a recap of the book. It says, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Our assurance of eternal life is based on the promise of God. The assurance that we have is based in the faithfulness of the God who makes promises to us. Um, I don't have this passage in your book, because I was on your notes, because I was working on it late last night. And I was like, ooh, how did I miss this? Um, The introduction to Titus, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness 
in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Paul and John both attest to this, that we can know that we have eternal life because it's been promised to those who believe in the work of his son and that the work of the son is perfect and accomplished and that God is faithful and true. And based on those two facts, we can know that we, if we have placed our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we have eternal life. And this eternal life, by the way, John talks about this elsewhere, is not just a future hope of eternal life. It is not just a time span eternal life, but there is a, this is eternal life that we know him, right? We get to know God. Um, like, again, it's one of those things that we have the misfortune. There are many great things about having grown up in a church. I would not trade it for the world. But one thing that happens is we just get used to the water. We get used to the things that we hear. Um, it's like the old joke about the two fish swimming, two young fish swimming through the, through the ocean. And this old fish comes by and says, hey, boys, how's the water? He swims over and the other fish goes, the heck's water, right? Um, <laughs> we get so used to hearing these truths that they just become the air that we breathe. And we don't appreciate the fact that fallen, limited, finite sinful human beings get to have a personal interpersonal relationship with the God who created the universe. Like the fact that that doesn't break our brains is just because we've let ourselves get so used to it. It's like the dishes that my kids know where those go. It's like, yeah, those are dishes, but this is new, right? We get so used to the things that we know that we, we just walk past them. But this is crazy stuff. This is like mind-blowing stuff that we get to know Jesus, that we get to know God. And then, nextly, that he hears our prayers. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Do y'all remember the sacrificial system where like once a year a, a high priest had to go into like the Holy of Holies to make communion with God for all of the people? For thousands of years? We don't have to do that. God hears us. We don't relay through a person, through a person to God. Now, we do have an older brother who sits at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for us, and that's really helpful to know that Jesus is praying for you all the time. But I can go to God and pray. I can talk to the God who made the universe, and he hears the things that I'm saying and cares about them. Again, I can talk to the God of the universe. Like, it, it's, it's so weird. 
It's so weird. It's so not what you would expect. But God is a God who frustrates our expectations in the best possible ways. He miraculously opens a door, opens that veil through the flesh of his son to make a way for us to enter into him, to have atonement and have fellowship with him. Like, this is the greatest miracle that's ever happened, (laughs) that we could have fellowship with God. And we're, again, we are unfortunate church folks who have been saved from many troubles by being here for long times. A lot of us. But let's not lose sight of the giant miracles that are the basis for which everything else we do happens. Remember Isaiah 59, where God says, you're talking to the Israelites, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Like that is normal. But for us, because of the work of Jesus, things are abnormal. Things, well, really, we flip it over. That was abnormal. God created man to be in fellowship with him. Man broke it. Things were abnormal in allowing us to have fellowship with him. Things are made right again. Everything sad is becoming untrue. This is good news. And not only does he hear our prayers, he cares about them and he answers them. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And that end if here, if can function in a couple of ways. I just want to talk about this word real quick. If can mean like, hey, if you go there, you will see this. Or if you do this, I will do that. Where it's a conditional statement. Um, any of you who know anything about like programming would know this is a conditional statement. There's an if and there's a then. If this happens, then this. Um, uh, it's like the thing about the guy. Never mind. Um, guy says, his wife says, go to the store and get eggs and if they have milk sorry, go to the store and get milk and if they have eggs get 12 and so he goes to the store and gets 12 milks because they had eggs because if they had anyway um uh so this is not an if that's like hey if we know this but we don't know that we know this this is more of like a and since and because we know this and if we know this and we do then this so if We know, since we know, because we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the the request that we have asked of him. Again, earlier in the book, John says, and whatever we ask of, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And again, this is an exposition of really that chunk of uh, the book of John, um, where Jesus is doing his kind of final address with them and then the high priestly prayer. And he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. By the way, catch that. The reason for God's answering prayer, that we are, I want to say lucky, that's not the right word, fortunate beneficiaries of, is that God is committed to manifesting his glory in his Son. And because of that, that's what God says, When you ask in my name, I will do these things so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
And not only does like we know that we will have, he says we know that we have. There is an instantaneity about this. There is the, when we say, that's a present tense, when we ask, we have. Now, we may not experience, but there is a, there's such confidence in this communication here that we know that God hears us. And if we're asking according to his will, then we know that we have what he asks and we can trust in his timing to reveal it and execute it. Um, that asking according to his will uh, is, is crucial. We've seen that over and over again in John and in 1 John. Remember that our prayer is not us coming to some divine vending machine and putting in our prayer quarters and getting out our, uh, our snacks, our treats, right? This is, this is a, a communion experience. We pray, there is petition, but there's communion as well. Um, another thing that, again, I discovered too late yesterday to, uh, after I got my notes to Abby, this is a quote. I've quoted this, this commentary a while back. It's probably my favorite just for reading purposes uh, by Robert Law called The Tests of Life. It's a, it's a commentary on this book. He's talking about this passage. He says, The peculiar characteristic of Christian prayer is confidence. It is not the mere abject cry that pain, helplessness, or blank despair sends up to an unknown God on the chance that he may hear and help. As little has it the character of an endeavor to turn God from his purpose or to convert him to our way of thinking. Christian prayer is essentially an active identification of the human will with the divine will. And that confidence, which is its distinctive privilege, consists in two things. First, the persuasion that our will is in harmony with God's. And second, the certainty that God's will shall be done. So as we pray, as we read, as we walk with Jesus, we begin to be more in fellowship with him, in step with him, in communion with him. Our will aligns to his will. And we pray, and our will sounds like his will. We pray his thoughts after him. And what we pray... God's will happens because we are wanting what he wants and we are wanting along with the God of the universe and he gets to control everything. So we can know that we have what we ask according to his will because his will will never be thwarted and we get to delight in increasingly and increasingly walking in and with his will and advancing and championing his will in the earth, which is his glory manifested in his son. That is what prayer is. That is what we have knowledge of. That is what we have certainty of, John tells us. So hopefully, those three verses just got more interesting to you. If not, I've not done my job. Um, hopefully, you look at verse 13 and just stop and say, that's fascinating that I have eternal life. And you get to verse 14, you say, that is even more fascinating that I, he didn't just like save me and make me alive and leave me off on the side, but he hears me. And then 15 is even more fascinating that I get to have this degree of fellowship with him that we are almost planning together, if you will. God makes the plan, but that I'm joined in his will with him, that I communicate with him and I talk to him about his will and we together talk about how that's going to happen in the universe. 
Those are really interesting verses when we think about them for half a second. The problem is we often read them without thinking about them for half a second. All right, I have seven minutes to talk about these next two verses, and I will do what I can, okay? Now you're probably like, well, hopefully you're like, well, I guess we can talk about this, but this other stuff's so interesting. (sighs) Some quick thoughts on the sin that leads to death. There have been a variety of explanations proposed for this passage. Some uh, talking about a sin that leads to physical death. Think um, touching the Ark of the Covenant when you're not supposed to. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 when he talks about taking the Lord's Supper um, with ill motive and with sin. Um, Ananias and Sapphira come to mind, right? Lying in church about your contributions. Um, So that's a possibility. Um, These are sins. So the distinction between sins that lead to death and not lead to death are maybe sins that are committed with like a high-handed, like deliberate will to sin versus sins of error, essentially. Um, Maybe it's some uh, particularly heinous sins. Uh, Think like the, the Catholic distinction between mortal sins and venial sins, right? So like, like murder, adultery, um, you know, uh, theft, like these, the big ones, right? Those are the ones that, those are the ones, those sins lead to death. We don't pray for those people. Um, but I want to answer this question again. It's kind of in line with what we were talking about earlier. Let's flip it on its head. Why would any sin not lead to death? I think if we can answer that question, we can understand what the sin that leads to death is and what the sin that does not lead to death is. Why doesn't every sin lead to death? I think Keith did a great job talking about this a couple weeks ago. Um, Genesis two sixteen and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the good of knowledge of good and evil you shall not die, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. We talked about it earlier. The wages of sin is death. So... What do you expect in this moment? Adam and Eve here this morning, they eat the fruit of the tree, like game over, right? That's the, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We expect death in that moment. And there's spiritual death and separation. But the question is, why, don't, why doesn't every sin lead to death? Why is there a category of sin that does not lead to death? We were told that the sin leads to death. That's where the interesting thing is. By default, all sin does lead to death, but the grace of God is the free gift of eternal life to those who believe in the saving work done by Jesus. For this is the will of my Father, John 6, 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John seventeen three, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My interpretation of this passage, which is not inerrant, my, my interpretation is not inerrant. Scripture is inerrant. Let me be clear there. Um, I understand this as the sin that leads to death is the sin that is not atoned for, the sin that is consistent in its rejection of Christ's work of salvation for forgiveness. Because the only way you cannot have sin lead to death is through the forgiveness and the work of Jesus in that atonement. And if you reject that, you leave yourself without a way out of the death that is the natural, obvious result of your sin. So the good news is that not all sin leads to death. The good news is that when we sin, we have a great high priest 
who makes atonement for us. That through his own flesh and blood, he has taken the death that our sin, because technically our sin did lead to death. It led to his death. He died that we might live. He took our suffering that we may have his life. That's, so that sin technically still leads to death. It's just not our death. We get life through that great exchange. So that is my understanding. I would listen to and understand other people who have different thoughts on this. But I looked at this a bunch of different ways and I thought this is the only way that, that there seems to be a, an understanding of this that flows with the rest of scripture. Again, because it feels odd, because it feels out of place, our brain wants to categorize it. And it sits weird, and there's not a whole lot that talks about this in the Bible. And so we hold our interpretation of it loosely. Um, We listen to others who may differ with us, and we don't make it a hill that we die on. Um, But as I can understand it, looking at the rest of Scripture, I mean, I I like to go to extremes. So if this is talking about, like, high-handed rejection of Jesus, if it's talking about things like murder and blasphemy, I don't know what to do with the Apostle Paul at that point. Because the Apostle Paul was a gnarly dude before Jesus came and stopped him on the road to Damascus. He was a bad, bad guy. He oversaw the killing of Christians. He, uh, he, I'm sure he blasphemed the Holy Spirit, right? So I don't think that this can be the blasphemy. Because, man, Paul wrote like half the New Testament. So I don't think it's those things. Again, this is just me thinking this out loud and, and, and understanding the best I can in light of Scripture. I think this has to be sin that's atoned for versus sin that's not atoned for. So a couple quick thoughts, just application points on this. If, if this thing still gets thought, thought up, stuck in your brain. And if you have questions about this, I'd love for you to come and talk to me about them because I'm still thinking about it, honestly. Um, two questions that may be floating in your, around in your brains. How do I know if I've committed a sin that leads to death? Some of you may be feeling this like, oh, like maybe you're a worrier and you're like, what if this is me? Um, if you are grieved by the potential that you may have done this, that's a pretty good sign that you probably haven't. <laughs> it's a good sign the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. He's bringing conviction. And the fact that you have maybe done something that's put you out of step with the Father is a good sign that he's drawing you to him. Secondly, John says specifically, it's a kind of a weird verse where he says, I'm not saying you should pray for those that the sin that leads to death. So you may see someone who's in sin and say, should I pray for that person? A couple thoughts on that. First of all, John does not explicitly prohibit praying for that person. He's just saying that's not what I'm talking about. Remember, this is an example that he's giving in the midst of this flow about what we can know and we know that God hears us. And so he's saying we can pray for people who commit sins and God will give them life. Specifically, brothers and sisters in Christ, he says. So that's what he's saying. He's like, I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about praying for believers right now. So he's just clarifying his example when he uses that phrase, I'm not saying that we should pray for those. Secondly, kind of like the idea of like, should we, you know, we talked about love for the brothers versus like, what about people who aren't brothers and sisters in Christ? I don't think you're ever going to regret praying for someone. Let me just go there. Like praying for someone to be delivered from sin, if, even if they're not a believer, like I think that that has to involve the saving work of Jesus. I think there can be some frustration in, I pray that this person who I know is not a believer being delivered from this particular sin. And at that point in time, we're kind of putting the cart ahead of the horse. We're, you know, we're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic at that point. We, we need 
there's a bigger problem than that particular sin, and sometimes we get hung up on the sins. So maybe instead pray for, for the saving work of Jesus to come in and arrest their hearts and, and that they would turn their lives over to him, and then that that sin would be worked out in the process of sanctification. But I don't think you'll ever regret praying for someone to come to know the saving work of Jesus and for them to grow in the knowledge of him and to grow in walking accordance with his will. So when in doubt, pray for someone, okay? You're not, again, better, I think you're better off praying for somebody when maybe you were misguided than not praying for them because you're misguided. I think God will sort that out. Um, God is a God. We've been talking about this in, this pr- in our prayer workshop that Todd has been doing such a great job leading. Um, even with having a new baby in this house, God bless him. Um, God, we join God as we pray and he does what he's going to do when we walk in fellowship with him and we trust God to answer prayers in the means and the time in which he's going to answer them. So pray for people. Pray for your brother or sister in Christ who you know is struggling with something. Pray for that unbelieving friend that God would save them. Pray because we know that God is a God who delights in giving life to his children. All right? Thank you, guys. Next week, you get more Peter. So...